It's the 17th of November, 2015, and this is episode 264. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is new, exciting, and empowering, but we're not experts, just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin. This is Matthew Zipkin. And today on the show, we're joined by Nick Williamson, who's the founder and CEO of Credits and Pythia. How are you doing today, Nick? Doing great. How are you doing? So before we get into what Credits is and what Pythia is, why don't you tell us where you are and what your story has been in the blockchain space up till now? Sure. So I'm currently in the Isle of Man, which is where I live. I originally got involved in blockchain via Bitcoin, as as most of us probably did, back in mid-2010. I was actually playing poker professionally at the time, based out of the US in Chicago, and Bitcoin had a had a very compelling narrative for some of the things that were going on with the, the gambling space at the time, especially with the US. So I started looking into the technology, was really fascinated by it, and actually started building a couple projects with people that I knew at the time. Shortly after I found it, a company called PokerStars hired me, the world's largest poker company, and they hired me and their headquarters is in the Isle of Man. So in early 2011, I actually ended up moving out here and have lived here ever since. Cool. So what is the deal with Isle of Man? Is it a sovereign nation? Is it part of another country? Where in the world are you and, and what is the status over there? Sure. So physically, the Isle of Man is located in the middle of the Irish Sea between England and Ireland, uh, basically about halfway between Liverpool and Dublin. It's, it is its own sovereign nation. It's not part of the UK, although it is a crown dependency of the UK. There's this complicated Venn diagram that you can look up that describes all the different islands and countries that are associated with the whole British Isles. And the Isle of Man is one of the more independent jurisdictions within that Venn diagram. So while it is a crown dependency, it does rely on the UK government for defense, for example, or or most of its foreign relations. It does have an independent government and one of, if not the oldest, continuously running parliaments in the world as well. Okay, that's really interesting. And, And what is the role of Bitcoin in Isle of Man? Yeah, so Bitcoin and blockchain are a very natural fit for the Isle of Man because the Isle of Man has a very long-standing tradition of finding niche, high-value-added industries that uh, larger jurisdictions perceive as a bit risky or as a bit of a potential reputational risk. And so they're happy to bring on people that they trust and companies that they trust to build up together with industry a regulatory framework that both protects consumers but allows for innovation. And one of the most high profile versions of that was in the gaming industry about 15 years ago. And the company, one of the companies that helped drive that forward in the gaming space with the Isle of Man was PokerStars, who, as I said before, uh, was my former employer. Cool. And is Bitcoin like the national currency of Isle of Man or was that a proposal or, or am I, do I have my wires crossed? <laughs> not, not, uh, nothing like that uh, is, is, uh, was, was ever floated seriously as far as I'm aware. Okay. Okay, cool. I don't know what I'm talking about then. Okay, cool. So these days you developed something called Credits. Uh, why don't you tell us what Credits is? What are you trying to accomplish with this project? Yeah, so Credits today is a framework for building interoperable private blockchains. 
that are built to purpose. So it was originally scratching an itch to look at different consensus mechanisms for things like a cryptocurrency type construct. And then I was looking around and talking to some of the people in the space who were trying to build interesting ideas such as games or, or other such things on top of Bitcoin or the fledgling Ethereum platform at the time. And they were just running into a lot of problems. And I decided to see if I could potentially put any of those on what I had already built in the credits prototype um, a little over a year ago. And it turned out to be a fairly natural fit. So and fairly easy to implement. So I made a, a pretty strong pivot into, uh, instead of making it just one blockchain, one credits blockchain, turning it into more of a set of libraries that people can use to add functionality and, and build a built to purpose blockchain. And then in the past few months, we've been adding uh, the functionality, uh, which we've been sketching out for a long time, but only started implementing uh, in the past few months to make those blockchains actually interoperable. So you can both consume and expose information with other blockchains and expose and consume functionality from different blockchains as well. So one of the prototypes that I built earlier this year on top of the credits protocol was actually, as far as I'm aware, the world's first decentralized poker site. This is still something we only use internally for demos and as an internal prototype, but um, it actually deals cards trustlessly with no third-party dealer. It, it matches players up. It settles the winning and the losing in the hands and uh, just runs autonomously, all validated by whatever set of validator network you set up within the construct for any individual poker chain. And the sort of thought process behind that is you want to be able to put that granular functionality into that one built-to-purpose chain and allow it to do things such as accept deposits and process withdrawals um, across other chains, or maybe you want to run a promotion that has something to do with, I don't know, how a sporting event turned out. So you want to be able to get that information from a blockchain that provides basically a data ticker for, for sporting events. So we're basically trying to build like a Lego uh, set of um, capabilities and features that you can plug and play together in various ways when when building your own decentralized service or application. Okay, it sounds like there's a lot of different parts to this. So I guess so. My first question is: so credits. It sounds like it is not just one blockchain. It's not like oh, we got Litecoin now. It's uh, multiple blockchains, and you mentioned the private blockchain aspect. So it's like any company can make their own credits. So right now, are there other multiple credits blockchains that are running independently of each other? Yeah, so we have a couple of initial customers and we um, are, are signing on partners at the minute, but we also have some non-commercial partners such as the Isleman government, which is actually running the world's first government service that's run on a blockchain. And that's a registry of all the blockchain-related businesses and, and businesses that want to provide services to blockchain companies on the Isle of Man. It is actually running live right now. We're going to be releasing, we're going to, we're going to be exposing visibility into it publicly within the next couple of weeks. But our view of the world very much is millions, potentially billions of independent blockchains that are all responsible for their own granular view of the outside world or their own granular functionality to actually interact with a certain aspect of the outside world. And each of these credits blockchains has a mining reward and a, and a native currency underlying all the other applications? 
Yeah, so we, we don't do anything with proof of work. What our consensus mechanism looks a lot more like proof of stake, but in a lot of the purpose-specific things, we think that that proof of stake voting mechanism will will be based much more on a contractual or ownership basis. So sort of like owning shares in a company. So if you have a decent, if you have a blockchain that's basically acting as a decentralized company, the people who own shares and are responsible for that organization would then be the validator network for that. DAO. Okay, but those are the proof of stake signers or farmers or miners or harvesters or actually what, what do you what do you want to call them? The signers? Oh, uh, we just call them validators. Okay. And those people are exclusive, right? This is not an open network where anybody can spin up a node and validate. You need to be permissioned in. Is that what makes this a private blockchain? Generally, yes. So we, we see it as operating on continuum, though. So it's not that you're locked into one model or another. It's when you're building your use case uh, and you, you can choose on the continuum to how permissionless versus permission do you want it, how decentralized versus centralized you want it. Just like the Internet we've seen over the past 20 years, cycles of bundling and unbundling different services. And where we're at various times, the trend was to unbundle everything and provide each specific feature independently from each other and let people mix and choose to some of the stuff we've seen more recently where a lot of bundled and monolithic type services and apps have appeared. We think we're going to see the same sort of thing with decentralization versus centralization. Now that we have these sorts of technologies that Bitcoin and other blockchains have started to uh, bring about. Okay, so maybe we should just take, an, take one example. So you mentioned the Isle of Man government uses a credits blockchain to register blockchain businesses. So let's just look at that one client of yours. What does their blockchain look like? Are there miners? Is it public, private? How, how, are, how is that one example set up? Yeah, so that, that one's actually a pretty simple one. And just so you're aware, it really is this, this specific use case. It really is mostly to make sure that we can demonstrate some of the non-transactional sort of non-payments characteristics that we think can be hosted on a blockchain, really acting as a door opener to other potential use cases, both for the Isle of Man government, but also for other governments. So specifically with that, with that use case, there are three validator nodes, one of which is operated by Pythia, my company, one of which is operated by NICTA, the Manx ICT Association, who works both in the private sector, with private sector companies and with the government on bringing information technology and, and, and tech knowledge and tech companies in general to the Isle of Man. Um, and the third validator is operated by the DED, the Isle of Man Department of Economic Development, which is a government department. So the responsibility to make sure that only good information is coming in, only information that conforms to the rules of the network, is split between a private company, Pythia, between a public-private advocacy group, uh, MICTA, and between the government itself, so that no one organization actually has that responsibility or holds that capability of acting as the gatekeeper for new information coming in. Okay, and can the public access this blockchain at all, or is it literally just these three nodes? Like, can I make a transaction on this blockchain? Right now, you specifically cannot. Right now, the, the people who can make transactions are limited. With this specific example, that will probably always be the case. But as we move to looking at other government services, 
and other use cases that will change um, in, in other use cases, but it will be fully visible. And actually right now, if you knew the, if you knew the specific servers that was, these nodes were running on, then you'd be able to view it, but we'll be publicly releasing the, the information on how to connect to these nodes directly in the next few weeks. And then eventually we'll be uh, releasing full clients as well so that anybody who wants to sync up directly and be a full node sort of in the Bitcoin parlance, uh, a full node being anybody who relays transactions and, and say sync to the networks uh, rather than somebody who, uh, whereas the validators are more like the miners, uh, the people who decide which blocks are valid or not in the first place. So, so yes, eventually anybody will be able to actually fully sync to the network. In the short to medium term, it will be more that you can directly connect and see the web view sort of like a blockchain explorer for this government service. I see. And the main idea here is that the information can be validated, right? Even if you can't join the network as a miner, you can still make sure that the three nodes that are mining are doing it correctly and that there's no fraud. Yeah, and as long as you're as long as one person is syncing to the network, there's no way that either the Isleman government or my company or MICTA is going to be able to go back and claim something that we once said happened, uh, never happened. So taking away the payments use cases, taking away the settlement use cases, the government use cases, what we see as fundamental to the blockchain technology is that it's a series of both irrevocable and attributable statements. So we can uh, verify at some point in time that this is Nick's public key. And we can also see that Nick has made statements A, B, and C on this network. Now, once I make those statements, as long as there's at least one honest participant, not even a validator, but one honest person syncing up, if we try to do anything shady in the future, you'll be able to see, no, actually, I have this proof that you had previously said this. So I know that's a bit abstract and a bit one step taken away from the actual use case or any of the use cases that we'd be talking about. But that's the general principle that allows us to build use cases such as government services or payments or settlement on top of such a, such a structure, such a technology. So is this blockchain running? Like, is there a block every 10 minutes or do the nodes only sign something when they need to, like when there's a new entry for this registry? Yeah, so the way it's set up right now is that it only creates a new block when it needs to, when there's a new entry. You could set it up so that it will still keep on giving out empty blocks even when there's nothing new to actually put in there, but we don't really see a reason to do that for this specific use case. And actually, if there was, in the normal operations of this network, blocks are generally going to take about five seconds to confirm once proposed to the network. So once there is actually something to confirm, it will generally take about five seconds before it's made permanent. Okay. So what you've got basically is like somebody makes a statement, three people sign it with their public key, and then the statement and those three signatures is basically available to the internet. Right. I mean, that's, that's at its essence, or maybe there's like a, a hash of the previous transactions that there's some kind of chaining. But it seems, if I'm understanding it correctly, really just that simple, right? We make a statement, three people sign it, and it's public. Um, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of details around that. But for, for the basic like 10,000 foot view, absolutely. And what's really interesting about blockchain in general, as we see it, is a lot like what cloud and how cloud ended up being interesting in general, where immediate dismissal of cloud was, well, we've had time sharing for computers for 60 years. 
I mean, that's the whole mainframe timesharing model. Yeah, that's true. But we generally had one corporation would buy their mainframe equipment for millions or tens of millions of dollars. And then they would timeshare that internally only if you were already an employee for whatever large corporation made that purchase. And then what the cloud did was it brought timesharing for infrastructure and platforms to a more granular open, scalable, on-demand sort of context. And we really see the blockchain as doing that for existing trust networks. So right now you have to sort of take a one-size-fits-all. It's expensive, it's, it's unwieldy, it's pain in the ass to access existing trust networks, whether they're governments, their utilities, their banks, their telecom companies. You, you, you go to one or several providers in a given jurisdiction for a given service, and you can't unbundle anything in there. It's kind of very much a take it or leave a proposition. And it's, it happens in lumpy distributions that aren't very user friendly to access, where we see if we can onboard some of these trust networks onto these built to purpose blockchains, you can start accessing those trust networks in a much more on demand and granular fashion. Okay, this is interesting because I feel like the number two kind of issue in the community right now, like when we're not talking about the block size debate, what we're talking about is corporations that want to do private blockchains and what does that even mean? And and so you guys are making private blockchains. And so you're obviously a, a big proponent of private blockchain. But I, something I've never really understood about that is like, you know, why? Like this this example where you just make a statement and sign it, like, is that even really a, a blockchain does there need to be a currency involved? And the whole fact that it's not censorship resistant, what is the actual value add to having something that is like a blockchain, but is private, you know? Yeah, sure. And I've actually written quite about this on blog.credits.vision. I think I have four or five articles out that explore these issues in depth over the course of several thousand words. But just for the 10,000 foot view, I think that you actually don't need a it's a bit of a distraction to say that you need a native token or you need a currency to provide the incentives for a blockchain to maintain itself. What you need for a blockchain to maintain its integrity is a set of incentives that are aligned. That incentive structure can manifest itself as a native crypto token, or it can act as a ownership in a DAO, or even as a contractual understanding between two, three, four, or five parties. Um, there's actually a lot, in my opinion, and in my company's opinion, of leeway there on how exactly you set up the specifics of any given specific instance. I mean, like blockchains are slow. There's so many disadvantages to using a blockchain as opposed to, you know, just a database, you know, that that could even be public facing or just like from the, the Isle of Man example, every time somebody wants to register as a blockchain company, you know, why not just print it in the newspaper? And then you could just have a, a clerk that just keeps all the newspapers in a box and like, you know, blockchain solved, right? Yeah, sure. Uh, and that definitely works at the sort of scale that something happens two or three uh, times a month, and you're only going to have a few dozen people that care about it at any given time. But when, when you do start needing things that are at scale or that you need to verify over long distances is when things start getting a bit trickier and where we think blockchain actually starts playing a role. On the scalability portion, it's really proof of work that provides that inherent trade-off between scalability and the reliability of the security layer. There's other consensus mechanisms that allow you much greater uh, leeway in that trade-off. Um, we're actually seeing in some of our private networks 
comfortably north of 100,000 transactions a second with some of the financial institutions that we're working with right now, which is much more scalability than we think we'll need for quite some time now. Well, wow, okay. So you have a finance industry client with one of your credits blockchains and what was the transactions per second? Comfortably north of 100,000 transactions a second. Wow. Okay. That is amazing. So let's talk about that blockchain if you can, if it's not confidential, I guess. Can you mention the name of the company? I, I can't mention the name of the company, but I can definitely talk about the use case. Okay, cool. Yeah. And like, so my first question right off the bat is like, is that blockchain public? Can I look at it right now on my computer and verify it? No. Future products that are built on that, maybe, but um, this specific one is not. Okay, cool. Yeah. What else can you tell us about that example? It sounds really interesting. Yeah. So this is a project that we were doing in the settlement space. So basically, um, in the securities markets, you have the end stock certificate or the knowledge of who is the end shareholder of a given company is stored with these entities called custodians. And they're the ones who maintain the relationship with the end user and make sure that if it's transferred between two different people, that it's tracked appropriately. I'm simplifying for the sake of the conversation, but that's a 10,000 foot view of what service. Sure. So in this case, we'd be talking about like E-Trade. Like if I go on E-Trade, I buy a share of Coca-Cola stock. I don't actually own it. E-Trade is my custodian. They actually own it. Well, it's probably not E-Trade, actually. It's probably like a JP Morgan or a UBS or or somebody that's actually three or four entities between E-Trade and source a record. And that's one of the things that we think that blockchain may actually help provide is that right now, because nobody actually trusts each other, large financial institutions don't trust each other. That's why we've built up these complicated structures so that we can make sure that most of the time most things end up working out and we can reliably track movement and liability most of the time. That actually doesn't work out. I mean, one of, there's a lot of theories that a large, one of the large contributors to the 2008 crisis is exactly because in legacy systems, it is so hard to track that sort of provenance of truth through the system in real time. But we do think that there is some potential for blockchain to be used in those traditional markets to help make a much more direct relationship between the person actually trying to transfer that value or that security and the people that actually record it in the end. Yeah. So the the custodians, the actual, so like this would be the JP Morgans, the actual banks who actually hold the actual stock. They are the participants in the blockchain and they're like trading stock, let's say between JP Morgan and Bank of America or something. Yeah, again, I'm using I'm using examples, but as as far as potential representatives that that these might represent in this proof of concept network that we created, but that is the general idea. It's sort of a clearinghouse like stock exchange, like a dark pool almost between a couple of big players. It, it sits behind the exchange layer. So what it has the potential to do is potentially to make the clearing and settlement happen at the same time, at least the example that we were looking at specifically. Okay, so if, so if there's a financial crisis tomorrow, we can just print this blockchain out and see immediately exactly who owns what. I mean, that's what we think the end promises, yes.
Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by Tokenly and the LTB Network. Stay tuned, we've got big things coming. Today's magic word is credit. That's C-R-E-D-I-T. Credit. You've got until the 24th of November to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. Let's rejoin Matthew and Nick now. So what is the innovation here? Like by using a blockchain for all these banks to keep track of ownership, like what what is the old way and how does having this private blockchain solve that problem? Yeah, so basically this allows to solve a lot of the problem where instead of needing to necessarily keep including more and more and more intermediaries that can act as watchdogs between the organizations that don't trust each other and sort of offloading the systemic risk to those single points of failure. Instead, we can look at it in a much more federated sense where I may not trust you, but for us to do business together, it's at least good enough that mutable record that we can access in real time and use to see the real time view of what the world looks like according to the relationship between you and I, that you can never go back on something you said, ever say that, no, I didn't transfer those stock shares to you. That was a bad trade or whatever. Instead, you get a real-time, auditable, immutable view of actions that have actually happened. Okay, I think I'm having a light bulb moment here. So the, the criticism against private blockchains, from what I understand, is like, well, you know, it's it's stupid to have a cryptocurrency where only a few people can mine it. But that's not really what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is something that's totally not a cryptocurrency, but uses the cryptography tools from the blockchain to remove trust between two or more parties. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, it's stuff, it's technology that we've had available theoretically to us for decades at this point. It's just that we didn't have the right metaphors and the right hardware and the right timing, to be honest, to use it in full way in this exact type of construct as we did before. And that is that is one of the things that Bitcoin helped make happen is that it sort of put in the zeitgeist this view of the blockchain as this sort of magical thing that solves all problems. It's obviously far from the actual case. There are a lot of caveats and trade-offs, uh, as with any piece of technology, but it helps start the conversation that has led us to investigating these sort of technical constructs in such a way that we're starting to find real meaningful use cases that allow us to rethink how we establish trust over the internet. Right, and with the invention of the Nakamoto consensus, now there's a way to actually timestamp it. You could always have cryptographic signatures between two parties that don't necessarily trust each other. But in the blockchain age, now we also have a timestamping mechanism to add to that trustless model. Yeah, absolutely. And it's basically like bringing PKI infrastructure that permits and other large institutions have used for decades into a more consumer-friendly and like mass market-friendly construct. 
this is cool. This is really helping me understand why private blockchains are important at all. So now credit specifically, this is your private blockchain product. You boast interoperability. So does that mean that the Isle of Man registry blockchain can communicate with the stock trading blockchain? Those two examples we mentioned, does interoperability play a role there? Tell us about that feature. We're looking at a lot of use cases where, for example, you may want to have one blockchain that, that acts as a time stamping record for the average daily price of, of stocks in a given market or a ticker of, as I mentioned before, all the sports games that happened in a given day and their results. Um, and then maybe somebody else wants to build another blockchain that uses information from one of those two networks to resolve derivatives or resolve sports bets or something of that nature. It, it allows for data providers to provide that data in a way that happens right now in more legacy hub and spoke models that doesn't actually confer responsibility to those data providers in a meaningful way. It allows you to build responsibility in to provide that data in an honest way from the start rather than needing to have a complicated dispute mechanism built on top of that. It's not just for data, though. It's also for functionality. I'm making an app that wants to be able to hold customer funds. I can make a blockchain that actually autonomously holds customer funds in, say, an HSBC chain or a Bank of England chain or a money bookers chain or what have you, somebody that actually does hold the end cash in the end and allows it to be represented in a sort of e-cash or blockchain representation. So you can actually have a network that allows people to send it money. It allows that network to autonomously send money to other people according to the rules of the network as, as long as you want to build that sort of functionality into your, your product. Awesome. So on a technical level, this is sounding a bit like side chains. So I, I would say like, like on a technical level, how are these chains actually communicating? Is there an SPV proof? Or if somebody wants to combine a the score of the last 49ers game with, you know, my bank account at HSBC, does is there one node that needs to download both of those blockchains and verify both of those chains? On a technical level, how are they actually communicating? Yeah, on a technical level, it's actually uh, a bit like the the most basic form of it works is that the validators of the chain that want to consume either information or functionality from another chain do sync up to the networks that they're interested in. We have some ways that we're developing of making that a little bit more indirect and a little bit more scalable, but that's the easiest and most direct way of doing so. We actually call our product that achieves this cross chains rather than side chains as we, we feel there's a pretty big philosophical difference between the two products. Not only is there a large technical difference, as you can imagine, since we're, we're building an ecosystem entirely from scratch rather than building it on the Satoshi clients. So we're not doing anything with merged mining example for or validation. But and, and, and so with sidechains, uh, philosophically, it always is, okay, so you guys can go out and build all this innovation and play around with your little altcoins. But Bitcoin's always going to end up getting all the value from it because we're just going to, anything interesting you do, we're just going to make it a side chain of Bitcoin and then Bitcoin's going to get all of the value. Whereas cross chains we see as a much more, all the chains are sort of on an equal footing, much more of a collaborative thing where they the chains cross communicate, but there's no one master chain that sort of rules them all, so to speak. 
I see. But as long as I have both chains running on my node, it's easy enough to combine them. So I don't know, let's say I was also monitoring the Isle of Man registry chain, and I started my own chain that would just place bets on when the next transaction would occur. And like, there's nothing Isle of Man can do about that. If I, you know, I'm just, I'm monitoring their chain. I have this other cross chain and people are using that, my chain to make bets on the Isle of Man chain. And just as long as all the nodes are running both, they just link right up. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's where I think true permissionless innovation starts to happen is that the chain that you're using doesn't actually have to have any knowledge that you're doing so. Whereas with side chains to merge mining, well, the first thing you have to do once you want to add innovation to your own side chain is, well, now I have to go and figure out how I'm going to convince all the existing Bitcoin miners to A, validate my chain, but B, if I get some significant traction, not steal all the funds that have been deposited in my chain. So I think it's rather ironic that sort of the way that the innovation is being pitched, we'll see how it plays on reality, but the way that the innovation mechanism is being pitched for some of the Bitcoin ecosystem is actually a very permission-based uh, mechanism. Whereas what we're building, you pretty explicitly, if somebody puts that information out there and they use the cryptographic tools that we're providing to assign responsibility to that information, anybody else is free to do exactly what they wish with it. And there's really not a lot that the originating party can do about it. Okay, let's take a zany example here. So let's say I want to take money and bet on the San Francisco Giants and their sports scores come from one chain and I win some money there and then I bet it on, you know, the Dodgers and that their information comes from that chain and then I use that money to invest in a stock and then I take the returns from that stock and send it to another person. So that could be up to like five different blockchains that some node has to verify all the way, right, to make sure that, you know, that everything's legit. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where what I talked about earlier, where we do have mechanisms for making it easier than having to validate with every single chain that you're interested in validating information from. But that is still a little ways off before we're going to be terribly concerned with that. We're going to make sure that we seed the ecosystem with some initial use cases and some initial players first before we um, start worrying about scaling within that ecosystem too much. Oh, so one more question about the interoperability. Let's say I want to create a credits blockchain that just posts the temperature in San Francisco every hour. I just measure it out my bedroom window and it's my blockchain. And I own it. I'm the only validator. Maybe there's two or three or something. And people use that information to make bets or some other type of transaction. Maybe it's um, derivatives about crop yield or something like that. Me, as an information provider to the network, is there a way for me to profit from people accessing the information in my blockchain? Yeah, there's actually a few data providers we're talking to about this explicitly. Let's say that you wanted your, your more up-to-date, your more real-time updates to have a certain license that people had to pay for, and you were okay if your 24-hour delayed times or readings were uh, free for public access. You could do two things, one of which is you would only show the data that was real-time to people who had actually had a subscription to your service. So if somebody doesn't present the right credential, you're not going to give them the, the feed, the real-time feed. But anybody who is just on the free tier will still be able to tell you're not giving them wrong data. You're not selling them a bill of goods. Everything that you're putting, that you're giving to them, even though you're hiding some of the information, still is verifiable that the validators are validating the whole thing, not just the information they're giving you. But then you can also add in information about who is able to use your information in what ways to 
the metadata associated with that real-time feed so that if somebody ends up uh, subscribing to you and then reselling your data feed on without attribution or without outside the terms of that license, you can actually trace back very granularly that that's happening and that they're breaking your license. Oh, interesting. So we're not just talking about, uh, you know, my receptionist's dad's brother HBO Go password, which 100 people are using every single night. <laughs> you know, exactly. It's like I said, there's a lot of different options. And, and that's what's both very empowering and very scary about the whole thing is that you need to make sure that you're narrowing in on use cases that are both doable and uh, compelling, because you can get lost with trying to be everything to, to all people. So the examples we've been talking about before have been federated, meaning that there's specific entities that are, are the only entities allowed to sign blocks, and therefore you don't really need proof of work or proof of stake or, or proof of all you really need is is proof of signature by one of the three or whatever public keys but you know in your white paper you you talk about this proof of consensus which is your new consensus algorithm so does that fit into further down the road examples where credits blockchain might be more public yeah, I mean, that's just proof of consensus is the name that we initially gave the consensus mechanism. And as we start releasing more, you'll people that are building on it will be able to build more public or more permissionless networks on top of the framework if they wish. But am I right that like in that Isle of Man registry blockchain, there's no proof of work or proof of consensus or proof of stake happening, right? Well, it is the... Yeah, it is the proof of consensus or proof of stake, whatever you want to call it. But it's the only three voters, the only three people holding votes in that network are the three organizations involved. Well, why would you need to do a proof of stake model if there's only ever going to be three voting entities? All you need to know is their public keys, right? Yeah, I mean, but that's sort of just the mechanism for making sure that the network or the nodes know which three are the three. It's it's sort of like knowing that if you had a proof of state network with only three tokens, the three public keys that are assigned those tokens are the ones that get to um, validate any new blocks. Oh, okay. Okay. So so the stake is, is used to identify which, which nodes are the actual voting nodes. Yeah, I would say that stake and, and votes are, whether you want to call it weighted voting or bonded proof of stake or whatever, it's in the end, it's the same technical mechanism. It's the way that you think about it. It may be different depending on the use case. Okay. And then, so doesn't that by definition mean if you have stake, you have to have a token, right? There has to be uh, some type of quote unquote currency or something for people to actually have stake in, even if there's only three units of that token. Yeah. So, I mean, again, as it's implemented technically is is maybe different than how you would think about it in reality. So there are, it is technically implemented as there's three tokens that we each control, but those tokens are basically just the mechanism that we use to know that the three of us have done the key exchange, basically. Interesting. So could one of these parties send the token to another public key account and then that person could be the new voter? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay, okay. And 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 actually, we're we're building in because we are very much targeting everywhere from the individual developer to enterprise teams. We are explicitly building in mechanisms for that, so that you can have things like failovers, or you know, if somebody does get behind the corporate firewalls, we've seen happen so many times over the past few years, and takes over one of the validating nodes. You can actually have pretty robust and pretty sophisticated recovery mechanisms to make sure that you have continuity of those votes within that organization. Sure. So you mean like if somebody's private key gets compromised, you can make a transaction that sends their voting power to another key and then we're safe again. Yeah. And you can keep those on paper in a vault, basically in Bitcoin parlance, the uh, cold storage. 
Okay, this is very cool. So do you want to talk to us about your proof of consensus, which is built on proof of stake, but you guys have made some modifications to make it more compelling. Is that right? Sort of. So just like actually somebody sent me a picture from DevCon, the Ethereum conference in London uh, this week, where they were talking about this whole bonded proof of stake mechanism that a, a bunch of us have around the same time, or at least in the same year, independently sort of come up with. I was mentioned as one of them. So was Vlad and Vitalik and Jay Kwan with Tendermint. So it's really sort of a take on practical Byzantine fault tolerance with, with some modifications to make it more compelling or easier for some of the specific use cases we're looking at. Do you want to try to explain how it works? Um, again, it's just like you said, there's an initial distribution that you need for any of these networks for who is able to vote or who is able to validate. And for any given block, you need a majority or supermajority of of that validated network, again, weighted by stake or voting power to make that block permanent. One of the side effects of using this sort of mechanism is that once that block is made permanent, you actually can't orphan that block. You have to move forward from there. So it has this sort of ratcheting effect that actually ends up having some important implications for things like cross-network communication or turn-based gaming or that sort of thing. Oh, okay. That's interesting. You know, one thing I thought was interesting in the white paper is that any node in the system can propose a block. Is that right? But even though they can't vote on it, basically a proposal can can come up at any time or, or maybe many times in each voting round. And then we just kind of wait and see what the voting nodes actually vote on. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. There's nothing fundamental about a proposal or a proposed block that means it needs to be proposed by one of the validating nodes. You can easily build that into a network if you wanted to just, you know, it's not a valid proposal unless somebody that's a known validator has signed it. But for most, I, I, I really am struggling to think of a use case off the top of my head, other than just somebody feeling like they need to have more control uh, over the network to where that would really be intrinsically useful. So if there could theoretically in a voting round be two conflicting blocks Right, like with a double spend, for example, you know, two blocks that conflict on a double spend, and then we just wait and see which one gets the most voters. Yeah, sure. And that's actually the way that we solve the civil problem is that due to this bonded voting mechanism, if you vote on two conflicting blocks, you first get kicked out of the network. And then we take a portion of your surety bond, whether that's a token that's native or living on the network, or whether that's something that happens in the outside world, either contractually or otherwise. I see. So nodes can be punished for misbehaving in that way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so so if I'm a validator node and somebody sends me a block proposal and I'm like, this looks good to me and I sign it and then a double spend block comes my way, I can't sign that one because I'll be punished for it. So that means every voting round, I can only sign one proposal. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's explicitly the, the anti-civil mechanism. OK, so let's say you've got a network where there's 10 designated voters and I create 10 conflicting blocks and send one to each one and they all sign it, then... What happens? How do we move forward? Yeah, so if you have 10 different proposals and they and each validator signed a different one, the way that that's resolved happens at what we call the meta protocol layer, where you first look to see, okay, which one of these has the most votes? If there's somebody that's a clear winner there, then you, you uh, go ahead and sign that in the next voting round because it's most likely going to be the confirmed block. If there's a tie there or it's sufficiently close enough, you add some bit of random jitter. A lot like the way TCP works where 
you know, if you don't get the acknowledgement back, you wait a little bit and you send the packet another time. If you don't get the acknowledgement back then, then you wait a little bit longer randomly so that you're not sending packets into each other. That's more or less how it works. And then eventually those 10 nodes will pseudo randomly come to a consensus over a period of uh, two or more voting rounds. Oh, okay. So you can vote on more than one proposal. You just have to wait like a cooling off period between each one. So it doesn't look like you're intentionally trying to attack. Yeah, basically resets every voting round. So you can either vote on the same one you voted on the previous voting round, or you can vote on a new one. Okay. And so what is a voting round? Is it time period? Like you just say every one minute you can start over or is a voting round some other type of uh, object? No, it's, it's just a time period. In most of the prototypes and proof of concepts we're building now, the voting rounds are five seconds long. We've only been doing some of our scalability work on throughput so far, but once we start looking at sort of what types of networks allow different types of latency going forward, we're also going to see how far down intrinsically we can take that voting round to allow for things such as sub-second blocks. Are there any other uh, compelling technical features of credits that's maybe unusual for a blockchain or or novel, you know, in cryptocurrency in some way? I mean, I think we've covered uh, most of it. The most compelling thing I would say, other than the interoperability, which allows you to, as the ecosystem grows, combine different use cases that that ecosystem is seeded with, which I think is going to, in the medium term, become the most compelling feature. The, The other thing is it's just... We've, we've been finding the limited partners we've been working with so far, it's um, just much faster to get use cases up and running than on some of the other blockchain frameworks. And it's just a, it's much more lightweight, many fewer moving parts. Actually, soon uh, we'll be launching a cloud offering, and we're already onboarding people into our partner program, which will launch in the first quarter of the coming year. So... If you if you do sign on to start building on top of us, you'll already be in in good company with some some people who have quite a good bit of experience in the blockchain space at this point. So Pythia is a private company. You guys are for profit and credits is the software that you're developing. Is credits open source? Credits is not currently open source. And right now, the only way to for the next three three to four months, the only way to access the credits platform is by partnering with us or becoming a customer. But we do plan on open sourcing the bulk of what we've been building over the next six to 18 months. Uh, a large portion of that is that we are a completely unfunded company. I funded the company myself for the first seven months, and then we've been funded by revenue ever since then. So the way that we keep the lights on and the way that we are able to continue fleshing out the technology we're building is via paid work. One of the reasons that we're keeping it proprietary is that, frankly, it, it makes it easier to sell work to our customers if the only way they're able to access this technology is by paying us. But also it keeps some of the, fundamentally it keeps a more focused set of eyes on the technology in the initial stages so that we can um, make the choices that we think are important early on rather than having to explain to a global audience every single decision that may end up affecting things further down the line that maybe aren't obvious in in the uh, open source community at this point in time. I see. But just regarding trustlessness, don't you think open sourcing the code is an important part of verifying the blockchain? 
Absolutely. And that's part of, well, that's one side of it. One, there's two sides of this. Part of it is open sourcing the implementation and part of it is open sourcing the standards. The standards that we're working on that we're conforming to will be as far as how you validate data and everything else will definitely be open sourcing relatively quickly as we're starting to launch this cloud offering, as we're bringing partners on board. That'll be one of the first things that we do. Uh, the specific implementations and some of the tooling and, and everything else that we're building will be on a longer time scale scale of open sourcing, but we will be developing that schedule for how that plays out and how that unfolds. And the, the goal is to, like I said, uh, open source the bulk of what we've been working on and what we're continuing to work on over the next six to 18 months. I see. You, obviously, you want to profit on your own intellectual property, but the, the aspects of the blockchain that need to be validated by users is open and people can audit the code that does that easily. It will be. It's it's not today, but that is going to be one of the first things that we open. Yes. Well, this is really interesting, Nick. You've actually really opened my eyes about how private blockchains can be very useful. There's just one other thing. This week, there was a video. Andreas Antonopoulos spoke at a convention this week. And one of the things he was talking about private blockchains is that because they're not constantly exposed to the chaotic Wild West disaster of the internet, that they are akin to being raised in a bubble, you know, and will grow up without any immune system, so to speak. I don't know if you saw the talk, but if you get my drift, like, how do you feel about that? Yeah, and I understand the viewpoint. I mean, it's the it's the same old many eyes make for shallow bugs uh, argument. And that, that does work if there are literally uh, millions of people reading the code. But as we've seen before with things like Heartbleed and whatnot, that's almost never the case. In my opinion, it's much easier to make sure things are secure by simplifying architecture and simplifying code, removing moving parts rather than by putting out a lot of stuff that's complicated and hard to reason about, and then saying, hand-waving away that, well, as long as a lot of people are, are looking at it, it will end up being secure eventually. Good answer. Great. So credits and Pythia, is there anything else you want to add? What's your, what's your website if we want to get more information? Yeah, so the website's credits.vision. If you want to, if you're interested in building on credits, we are actively onboarding partners right now. I said before that previously the only way to build on the credits platform was to become a client, but now we're opening that up to ecosystem partners as well. So before you had to pay us money to build on credits, now you just have to um, convince us that you really do want to build on credits and that it'll be, it'll be fun to work with you. So we're moving in that direction very quickly as we do start building our partner program and our cloud offering. So it should be an exciting few months coming ahead for credits and stay tuned. Cool. You still playing poker? You know, I haven't played poker since my leaving party from Poker Stars, which was actually held at one of the um, one of the local speakeasy style bars over here. And we played a poker tournament as part of my, my leaving party. And I actually ended up winning that one. So I sort of left on a high note. Nice. Quit while you're ahead. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, Nick Williamson, thanks so much for your time and good luck with your project. Thanks a lot, Matt. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by Matthew and Nick. This episode was edited by Matthew Zipkin and featured music from Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. Any questions or comments? Email Adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. See you next time.